So this evening I would like to talk about mindfulness of the body, which seems to be a good theme given we're doing so much asana practice and embodied walking and sitting practice. So as you listen to the talk, listen through your body. There's a way we can listen that's not just through our head and our mind and our ears, but feeling any impact or resonance of the words or your own reflections in your body as you sit. So feel finding your center. Notice the tendency when we hear a lot of words to go up into the head. And seeing if you can find a way to stay in your body as you listen and see what, what, the, what resonance the body has. So um, I was appreciating Anne's uh, brief uh, overview of uh, the place of or the intertwining of these traditions that goes back thousands of years, as we've said, um, into the ferment of northern India and the, that sort of uh, fervent search to understand the truth, to understand what freedom is, what awakening is. Um, and what was also true of that time was there was a very strong view or belief that the way to liberation was through, not through the body, was through asceticism and denying the body, self-mortification. Very strong um, view held by many, uh, including the Buddha, practiced by the Buddha also. Uh, and as Anne mentioned, later on, maybe you know, eight, nine thousand years, nine hundred years after the Buddha, there was a growing um, sort of revolution that, that came out of the Tantra uh, traditions, uh, both in Hinduism and Buddhism, that um, basically you could say uh, regarded everything as having Buddha nature, and if everything has Buddha nature, so does the body. And therefore we shouldn't look at it as just a source of defilement and a, ta- and a source of attachment and something to be uh, rid of or freed from, but actually with the, the, the body itself uh, is no different than Buddha nature. And so uh, we can use the, 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 the body as a vehicle for practice, as a vehicle for awakening, which is what we're doing here. And I think that very much echoes what's happening in the West as Buddhism's come to the West. There's a growing interest in the body, in, in embodiment, in, in what understanding what embodied practice looks like. The fact that there's 20 million people practice yoga in America is testament to the... the um, the interest to incorporate the body as a, as a vehicle for practice. And I think it also arises out of the, the, the disembodied culture that we live in. We live in a culture that's very heady, very intellectual, very busy, and um, not connected with with our bodies. You know, we live from the eyebrows upwards in our thoughts, in our world, in our computers. Uh, and so there's a whole uh, vast resource that we are overlooking and missing. A famous line from James Joyce where he says, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> we mostly walk around like that, completely disconnected from our feet and our legs and our belly. There was a radio report from New York City of a man who died on the subway. He was a 41-year-old man. He died, I guess, sitting upright in the chair. And he rode the subway all day 
before somebody realized he died. That's how disconnected we can be. A friend of my dad's who was a sports player, a hockey sports player, and um, he was so neglectful of his body, he had um, ingrown toenails that one of his uh, feet got infected and got gangrene, and he lost one of his legs. And you think he would learn, but the same thing happened to his other leg, and he also got gangrene and lost his second leg. So sometimes it takes a huge uh, sledgehammer to wake us up to the fact that we have a body, or we could lose the body if we don't take care of it. So as I said, the Buddha practiced in the tradition of asceticism for six years, um, and found after all those years of mortifying the body, sitting in, in the midst of fires and denying the body food and air and water and all kinds of things, that he realized that wasn't the way. He got weak, he couldn't practice, and eventually renounced that way. So fortunately, we don't have to do that, and discovered the middle way, the, the path between asceticism and self-indulgence, which his previous life had been, and developed an orientation that included the body in a very detailed very um, precise understanding of bringing awareness, bringing attention to the mind-body experience. He said that all we need to learn on this journey can be learned within this fathom-long body. Fathom-long is apparently about six foot. He said there is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. That's a lot of goodies he's uh, listing out there. The result of practicing mindfulness of the body leads to freedom, to peace, happiness here and now. So how come we don't do that? How come we don't place our attention very much there? So I'll be talking a little about that. So he gave this lovely simile that I, that I like a lot about how we should practice mindfulness. He gave this image of a man uh, is told to walk through the marketplace carrying a bowl of hot boiling oil on his head, full to the brim, and he's supposed to walk through a busy marketplace, walking behind a beautiful maiden who's doing this very erotic dance through the market. And behind him is a guy with a huge sword. And if he spills as much as one drop of oil, he gets his head chopped off. So that's how we to practice mindfulness, with that steadiness and poise, maybe without the fear and the threat, but with that sense of balance. Another story that I remember today was um, a story about King Ashoka, who was the the king of India in, I think, the first century BC, sometime around then, who um, uh, was the first king to un unify all the kingdoms in India. It was a very, uh, was a very ruthless reign, very lots engaged in a lot of warfare and, and shed a lot of blood. And um, at the end of a long, bloody battle, and he was feeling particularly weary and disgusted by all the bloodshed that he'd caused in his desire to conquer all of India he saw a monk dressed in robes walking across the battlefield with incredible mindfulness and poise, very gently, very respectfully, very diligently, uh, through this very uh, distressing scene of corpses and bodies dismembered. And, and he had an epiphany. He had, a, he had a, both an epiphany and a repulsion 
for his uh, bloody uh, reign and a desire, as he saw the monk, a desire to live the spiritual life. And after that, so the story goes, he transformed his reign from one of bloodshed to one of great uh, enlightened uh, reign and was, was and became a uh, converted Buddhist and was really responsible for the growth of Buddhism as we know it today in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia. So here we are with these bodies, and the bodies are kind of odd things if you take a look. You know, as Jack likes to say, we have this, this thing of flesh that has a hole at one end that we stuff dead plants and animals, and a hole at the other end which we get rid of them. And we have a couple of limbs and four limbs that we sort of use to move around so we can find animals and plants to stuff in and mate and do all kinds of things. You know, we born into this life. We didn't ask to be born or so. We, well, who knows what, what, what happened before we got here. But we didn't get a catalog of the body that we wanted, of the color and the shape and the size and the smell. And we just, here we, we get this body. Here it is. You, you grow up and this is the one you've got. And we can, you know, trim it and cut the hair and color it and things. But basically, here it is. This is, this is the one we've got. And we're asked to take care of these body clothes, as Mary Oliver says. Yeah, to, to treat this body with, with some care and respect. So it's kind of a mystery. Here we are, we, you know, this, it's often said that humans live between heaven and earth. We're, we're planted in the earth, very much of the earth. We are the earth. We're the earth's moving surface. And yet we also have this an awareness of the universe and the sky and transcendence and awakening. And we're firmly planted between these two realms. And the body is what is the medium, the go-between, the house. So, as we've been saying in the Dharma teachings, say a lot, to, to wake up, to be free, we first have to be present. We first have to arrive in the present moment. And the easiest way, the most direct way of doing that is through the body. The body is always in the present moment. If you're not sure about that, take a look. The senses the six senses, mind is a, a sense in Buddhism, is always in, the, always in the present moment. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching. So right now as you're listening to my words, as you're hearing the crickets in the silence, it's in the present moment. As you feel and sense your body sitting on the floor on the chair, those sensations happen in the present. The taste that you had eating tea today, happening in the present. We of course can be choose to be present or not to them, but they're happening in the present when we wake up. And as here we are in this beautiful um, paradise at Spirit Rock, what feels to me like a paradise, we're having this blessed weather. And of course the nature and and life in general uh, is always offering us, it's like an invitation to be present. It's a joy to be present when we can finally wake up to do that. To be here in this beautiful land with this nature and the sunlight and the, the autumnal colors and senses. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great loss to not be present to that. And we experience all that through the body, through the senses. This is from Mary Oliver. She says, my work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird. Equal seekers of sweetness. 
hear the clam deep in the speckled sand? Am I, oh, am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is my work, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. So that's what happens when we're present. And she continues, my work, which is mostly rejoicing since all the ingredients are here, which is gratitude to be given a mind and a heart and these body clothes. So in the Satipatthana Sutta that Howie mentioned yesterday, which is one of the main uh, teachings that the Buddha where he talked about mindfulness, he talked about mindfulness, cultivating mindful attention in all the postures of the body, sitting, walking, standing, lying down. And he also talked about cultivating this presence, as we've been saying, uh, in, at all times, during all, during all activities. Standing, walking. He says, the yogi acts clearly knowing when eating, when drinking, when consuming food and tasting. He acts clearly knowing when defecating and urinating. He acts clearly knowing when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. No breaks, you might have noticed. There's no breaks in mindfulness, because everything is equal value. And my favorite signs in, the, in Bodhgaya, where I used to practice, the people used to put little Buddhist graffiti in the toilet, and one of them was, pee here now. <laughs> and then my favorite one was, uh, this is the best place to let go. <laughs> so the body and the breath are always available. Always available to ground, to anchor this awareness. To anchor it from spacing out, as it so often does, into the spheres of our mind. Into our thoughts. And I've noticed over the years for myself that, um, particularly as I started practicing in the Vipassana tradition, how much more grounded and embodied I feel over these years, and how, how, what a blessing that is to feel grounded when I'm working or in conversation or in Safeway or wherever I find myself. There's something very um, uh, pleasing about that sense of earthiness that we feel when we're connected to the body, to our bellies, to our center, to our ground. And something very disorienting when I lose that and I'm more kind of spaced out or headless chicken-like. You know, we go through our day so often in this zone, this sort of spacey zone where we're not grounded and we arrive somewhere at a meeting or we drive somewhere and we forget how we got there or we come to this sitting hall, into the, into, into the Dharma hall and we don't remember how we got here. We obviously used our two legs somehow. So we have all these times in the day, all these moments where we're just not present. I love this story of this man who was on a drive with his wife driving on some long-distance trip, and he pulls up at the gas station, and he gets, go, gets out to get the gas, and his wife goes in to get some groceries and stuff, and he fills up the, the car with the gas and gets in the car and drives away. <laughs> and 20, 30 miles down the road, he realizes the car's looking kind of empty. He's forgot his wife. That's what happens when we check out, when we're not <laughs> centered. 
doesn't do well for our marriage. <laughs> so what happens when, we, when we're not in our bodies? Where do we go? Where do you go when you're not, in your, when you're not centered in your body? Anybody? Past, future. Anywhere else, so outside of ourselves, like those goggles, you know, those eyes poking out of the head. Yeah. Yeah, we mainly go into, our, into the past, into the future, into our thoughts, into our stories, our memories, plans, projections. We go into our heads. We go into our mentally fabricated world that we're very comfortable in, where we spend most of our time. A Stanford study that said we think 65,000 thoughts a day. It's a lot of thoughts, about one a second. So we're quite busy doing that mental machination. And it's very intoxicating, it's very enticing, it's very alluring. Thoughts are fascinating, they're creative and interesting, and often so much easier than being with, with our present moment experience. I know when I was on a retreat at IMS, Insight Meditation Society on the East Coast, and uh, it was a long retreat, and it was a physically painful retreat. I had trouble sitting on my buttocks. I had some pain, some nerve pain in my, in my rear end, which was a drag because it was a long sitting meditation retreat. And um, of course, I didn't want to be with my pain, so I spent a lot of the meditations creating all these elaborate devices of you know, sitting meditation swings that were suspended from the <laughs> ceiling that wouldn't require any pressure on the buttocks. <laughs> but I still think I should trademark and produce. This is from Billy Collins, from a poem, In the Moment. See if you relate to this. He said, I could feel the day offering itself to me, and I wanted nothing more than to be in the moment. But which moment? Not that one, or this one, or that one, or any of those that were scuttling by seemed perfectly right for me. Plus, I was too knotted up with questions about the past and his tall, evasive sister, the future. And so the priceless moments of the day were squandered one by one, or more likely a thousand at a time with quandary and pointless interrogation. Sound familiar? I want to be present to this bird song, but my knee pain, forget it. And the, and the sadness in my heart, forget it. But when I get to lunch, I'll really be present, but not when I'm doing the dishes. So a question for you is, uh, what's your relationship to your body like? What's your personal relationship to your body? How do you relate to your body? What kind of, if you had to talk about your relationship, how you relate to your body, do you treat it with fascination or curiosity or kindness or respect? Or do you ignore it? Do you think it's just this thing that you need to have to put up with to get you from A to B? Does it feel like a burden? Does it feel like a chore to have to take care of? Sometimes people feel like their body's an adversary, that it's getting in the way, that's purposely obstructing them from being able to do what they want to do. You know, I often think about um, uh, the injuries that we, that we 
uh, have, you know, when we're doing exercise, and certainly when we're doing yoga, I know a lot of people who, and even many yoga teachers who've injured themselves doing yoga practice because of not listening, because of not being sensitive, because of not attuning to their bodies. And I've done the same myself, you know, overstretched in a, po- in a pose, and then got frustrated that my body couldn't get into a certain asana. So how do you relate to your body? The body is such a great teacher. It's one of the reasons it's such a great vehicle for practice, and it's also something, a reason why we, we sometimes struggle with it, because we don't want to learn the lessons it has to teach us. And of course, it will make us learn them. The body doesn't give up. It bats last, as they say. I know people who couldn't slow down and all kinds of things would happen to them. They'd break their ankle or their foot or something in the body would get sick a lot, just forcing them to slow down. I had, for a time in the 90s, I had chronic fatigue and it was really an amazing teacher, just like any illness, any sickness, any injury. Uh, if, we, if we can turn to it, we can learn so much from the body. You know, I, you know, of course, usually we don't go, oh, great, I'm, I'm so happy I'm sick and I've got a broken ankle and I've got chronic fatigue. No, we struggle and we resist and we fight and we complain and we feel self-pity and we try to fix it and, you know, do everything we can to avoid it. And, and at some point, usually, at some point we have to surrender and accept the reality of how the body is. For me, it was having to accept the limitation of the body, the limitation at that time of how much energy I had, how much strength I had. And my mind had very different ideas about what it wanted to do, and the mind and the body uh, had also different ideas. The Buddha once said, Our body is precious. It is a vehicle for awakening. Treat it with care. This is somebody who came out of a long period of asceticism. He woke up to that, that it's a vehicle for awakening. It's the only one we've got. Mary Oliver says, we have to let the soft animal of our body love what it loves. What would that look like for you? Do we ever give, do we let, ever let our body off the rein, off the, off the, off the loose, loose, noose, off the chain, ball and chain? and let the body love what it loves. What would that look like? I think in this culture that's so driven to perform and excel and succeed and to, uh, you know, all of that, all of that pressure that we, you know, we push our bodies into these tight spaces, into these cubicles and uh, lifestyles. You know, often people arrive on these retreats exhausted because of the lifestyle that we're living because of the way that we treat the body or neglect the body. So if the body is such a great vehicle for awakening, why is it hard to practice? Why aren't we all naturally, why is this not, why is this not completely obvious to everybody already? Why don't we inhabit the body more if it's such a juicy, fun place to hang out and so good for practice? Well, Good Housekeeping magazine said that we have 84 unpleasant sensations in the body. And that's good enough reason not to hang out there. <laughs> the body is humbling. You know, just like meditation is humbling. 
you know, sit down, pay attention to your thoughts, and pay attention to your breath, and what happens? You pay attention to your thoughts. Same with the body. It's humbling. And there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of unknown when we enter the terrain of the body. There's a certain fragility. A certain, you know, we, we get close to the truth of impermanence. We get close to the truth of aging, of sickness, of change, of the mortality of the body. None of these things are easy to be with. Not that long ago, I woke up one morning and I was cleaning my teeth and I went to spit out my toothpaste, as you do, and my mouth didn't work. And I thought, oh, that's weird. My mouth doesn't work. Okay, so I was teaching that day, so I went to Spirit Rock and taught a day on metta, loving-kindness. And over the day, my face was getting number and number on the left side of my face. I thought, that's weird. I kept asking the, the manager in the office, does my face look weird? Because it really feels weird. And I was having trouble saying a few words and, um, and I just thought maybe I'd slept on the wrong side of my face or something and, you know, whatever. <laughs> not used to my face not working. So um, <laughs> it was a little odd. So I was driving home and I called a friend who knows a lot about neurology and he says, oh, it sounds neurological. You should go, you should take it seriously. So I went to the ER and because I had to rule out whether it was a stroke or not, it wasn't a stroke. And the doctor said, it's Bell's palsy, which I'd never heard of. Uh, I was happy to have a name for my weird frozen face that wasn't working. And over the next few days, it got more and more numb and um, uh, not, not, really, not that disfigured as Bell's palsy goes, but um, sufficiently uh, alarming. You know, when, you, when one side of your face stops working, it's a little worrying. <laughs> And I started dribbling my tea, and I get food stuck over this side of the mouth. I'd have to push it over, you know, and biting my biting my lip because you know, and my eyes wouldn't work. My eyelids didn't. Uh, I had to tape my eyes at night and things like that. It was a trip. The body is a trip, and uh, fortunately, I felt very blessed that I had been practicing a long time because with with mindfulness practice, you have a lot of sp- Space around stuff. There's a lot. There's a lot of a lot of spaciousness around experience. Even when it's fearful and traumatic and uncertain, there's the, that 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 is there's more of a refuge to rely on. And so when I was with my friend in the ER, it was um, mostly kind of comical. Just to, just the whole thing was. It felt very amusing, even though it was it was it was also distressing. There was a certain humor in it. That that there's a certain space around the body and just the mystery of it and not knowing what's going to happen and um, so I felt fortunate that through the practice there was a lot of um, humor about the whole thing um, and of course there was some there was some fear because sometimes but that doesn't go away and that the, the facial disfigurement and numbness stays and it's that's what you have to live with which I didn't want to live with I was very attached to not that, that not happening. I was quite attached to my face, I found out. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing was, the side of the face that works properly is the side that looks disfigured, because this side that goes numb looks like it's had 10 years of good Botox treatment. <laughs> it looks really young and calm and relaxed. Like, this was the meditation side. This is the before and after, you know. <laughs> But 
but I, th- you know, people said, well, you, were you worried about how you looked and how it, you know, and it wasn't so much how it looked. The thing that I, I was most concerned about was it made me realize how appreciative I was of how the body most of the times, for most of us, not for everybody, functions relatively effortlessly. You know, as we get older, this sort of things change, but mostly, you know, we walk and we, and it's fine and we eat and we chew and everything happens. It's amazing that the body functions as well as it does, you know. The Bell's palsy is just triggered by a virus that we all have within us and, you know, can happen any time. And um, so what I was most concerned about was having to live with the reality that eating and drinking was a chore and I'd be dribbling the rest of my life. That felt like a real drag. So um, fortunately, um, I got really good treatment and it went away quite quickly and... um, the face came back mostly, about 90% anyway. And um, I just got to realize the, the blessing of, of, of health, the blessing. You know, we, we, we have sickness amnesia. You know, we forget about sickness when we're well. It's probably, probably a good reason for that, evolutionary speaking. And then when we get sick, it's always a shock. Like, oh my God, my body's not working. This is tragic. This is a disaster. What's happened? You know, reboot the program. And I was feeling such a lot of gratitude for the body when it was functioning well. So the fun thing about being sick is you get to take time off work. So I took about a month off work, which I'd never done before. But it was different than I thought it was going to be because I, um, I had to rest. The virus was very intense. It was very exhausting. I felt like I had chronic fatigue again. And um, so um, I was back in that practice of resting. Resting is, I was saying this to somebody in the group today, I think resting, doing nothing, which is what resting really is, is an advanced yogic practice because we're so habituated to doing Right. Even around my house, I, I was, you know, my closets are cleaned out. <laughs> All the pictures have been re- re- rearranged. <laughs> All the plants are well kept now. Uh, it's very easy to stay busy. It's very hard for us just to simply be, simply not do. The great teaching. So I was reflecting on my favorite Spanish proverb that goes, um, "It is lovely to do nothing and then rest afterwards." That was my month. So one of the interest, the ironies was I was teaching this day long on loving kindness. And, um, and all through the day, as my face was getting numb, I didn't think to think, oh, I could love this. You know, it wasn't until the next day, it was 24 hours later, and I was out and I was touching my face and I thought, oh, and maybe I could love this too. Maybe I could love this frozen, numb, unfunctioning face. And that's often what illness demands of us, is that we love it. We turn towards it. We meet it with open arms. This is from Byron Katie. She says, the truth is that until we love cancer, we can't love what is. It doesn't matter what symbols we use. It's the concepts of good and bad that we attach to them that make us suffer. I was sitting once with a friend who had a huge tumor, tumor, and the doctors had given her just a few weeks to live. As I was leaving her bedside, she said, I love you. And I said, no, you don't. You don't love me until you love your tumor. Every concept that you put into, onto your tumor, that you, you'll eventually put that onto me. 
The first time I don't give you what you want or threaten what you believe, you'll put that concept onto me. This might sound harsh, but my friend had asked me to always tell her the truth. The tears in her eyes were tears of gratitude, she said. So our lives and our practice always uh, keep throwing things up for us to expand the field of our capacity to open to, to embrace with presence, with awareness, with love, with kindness. And the body is one of the, one of the main channels for that, that the body's always throwing up difficulties, pain, all kinds of things that, that are difficult, that are asking our, asking our heart, asking our presence to grow, to meet, rather than fight, to hate, to resist. So one of the things that people have been talking a lot today about is physical pain. You know, we come on retreat and we're mostly not used to sitting still in meditation, cross-legged or however you're sitting for this long. And so naturally we start to feel a lot of physical pain. It's inevitable. And yet these teachings, these practices are saying that we can find peace, we can find ease, freedom in the midst of even that physical pain physical discomfort. And how do we do that? How do we find ease in the midst of our knees burning or our feet feeling like they're going to fall off or our old back injury or a neck ache or a shoulder tension or wherever you're carrying the tension? How do we find peace? And we do that through the practice of mindfulness. Normally when we experience something unpleasant, what do we do? We run away, we check out, we get as far away as we can from it, push it away, reject it. As Ajahn Chah once said, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. All those strategies of trying to get away from our pain, what happens? It follows us, it comes back in another form, in another way, another manifestation. So what we do in this practice is we turn towards the physical pain. We, we use that quality of presence, of mindfulness, of spacious awareness to hold the pain, to hold the tension, hold the discomfort, to see that so much of the pain that we carry is our resistance, our contraction, our tightness, our fighting it. When we let go of the struggle, it's a lot more bearable. When we let go of the future, the, of, of, of time, of thinking, my God, it's only five minutes, I have 40 minutes left to go of the sit, and my knees are already falling off. How am I going to do this? I'm going to be wheeled out of here in a wheelchair. That's what happens when we bring in time. But when we come into the, just what's happening without the resistance, without time, without the concept, oh, there's some tingling in my knee, there's some stabbing in my knee, there's some piercing, there's some burning, there's some heat, coming and going, it's changing, it's moving, it's shifting. And I have the capacity in my mind, in my awareness, to shift attention from that to something less painful, like the breath, or sounds, or space, or, or the whole body. This is from Robert Hall. He says, the cure for the pain is in the pain. Longing is actually the feeling of life reaching out for conscious connection with all it is. It takes great courage to willingly feel the symptoms of grief or longing or despair or fear or pain and not flee from them. All these feelings must be felt in the body as life experience, not disease. The body may feel them as pain, but perhaps instead they are the birth pangs of a larger life 
that wants to be born through you. So a story to illustrate this, I was teaching a mindfulness-based stress reduction class some years ago, and um, it was about the fourth or the fifth class, and a woman came in who had been dealing with chronic pain in her neck for 10 years and been through all the Kaiser treatment plans and the pain meds and the doctors had basically given up on her. And so she was just left with dealing with her pain. And so the mindfulness course was a way of supporting her in that. And she came into the class one day uh, very uh, excited and, and wanted to share her discovery. She said, you know, I was sitting down one day following my breath and the neck pain was there. And I, and I said to myself, oh, I'm just going to see if I can be with the pain. And she said, for the first time in 10 years, instead of experiencing the fear and the contraction and the tightness, all I, fe- <clears throat> all I felt was the actual sensation of the pain that was actually quite tolerable. But all the other stuff, the fear and the burden and the hating of it and the muscles tightening around it, that was intolerable. But when I just brought my attention just to the, the, the minute coming and going of the sensations, that I can be with. And she also saw that there was space. Often when we have chronic pain, we think it's in every moment. But there's always space if we, if we look, if we pay attention. Another thing that, that happens as we work with physical pain, or any kind of pain, physical pain, emotional pain, when we, when we turn our attention to it rather than run away from it, and we also attune to the suffering nature of it, so we feel as Harry was talking about yesterday, the, 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 talking about dukkha, the, the suffering nature of being in this body. Over time, what can happen is, uh, is it, starts to, it starts to allow the heart to open to some tenderness, to some kindness, to some <coughs> compassion. When we open to the suffering nature of our experience with an open-hearted awareness, the heart can't help but meet it with some form of kindness, some form of care, some kind of compassion. So another reason we don't like to be in the, bo- in the body is because the body is the storehouse for the emotions. We feel most of our emotions through our body. Grief, sadness, loss, longing, loneliness, despair. Where do we feel that? We, might, we think about them, but we also feel them in the body. They're stored in the body. Often memories, the emotional memories are stored in the body. And we're much more comfortable thinking about feelings than, than actually feeling them because we don't like to hang out there. Right? Who wants to sign up for grief, loss, and despair? No thanks, I'd rather you know, check out, thank you very much. Think about my next vacation. There's a cartoon of a man sitting behind a big desk in his office, <clears throat> and he's, got his, he's leaning over the, couch, his, over the desk, and he's got his finger on the intercom to his secretary, and it says, Miss Jenkins, please get me in touch with my feelings. So that's often how we are. And I see this when I work with clients. I see this in myself. I see this you know, on retreats, that we're much more comfortable talking about our feelings than feeling them, than actually feeling the, the tender, visceral sensations of loss or sadness or anger or fear or grief. And again, the resolution of that is to bring the awareness into the body. The only way out is through. So we, 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 we learn as, we, as the days go on, we'll, 
you'll no doubt encounter many different feelings and emotions, both beautiful, joyous, and rich, and lovely, and also painful, difficult. And so the invitation is to embrace all of that with presence, with kindness. Another thing that we, um, another obstacle for not inhabiting the body is because of our feelings about the body. We often have a lot of dislike of our bodies, the shape, the size, the weight, how it looks. So we often carry around feelings of shame or embarrassment or, you know, we live in this culture that has this sort of body fascism, this sort of body perfectionism. where you have to be anorexic to get on the front cover of a magazine. And so we have all these associations and judgments about our bodies, whether about their age, their size. And so again, it's another reason that makes it harder to, to embrace our body, to see that our body is perfect just as it is. What would it be like to see that our body is beautiful, is whole, is complete, is just as it needs to be in this moment? How would it be if you were to hold this body as something precious, something unique to the earth, as Mary Oliver says? What would it be to hold our body with kindness, with love, with compassion? As opposed to thinking about what it should be like, which is just a a setup for suffering. So I could go on and on. There's many, many things that we can learn from being in the body. Um, We learn about the changing nature of experience, how the body gets old, gets sick, but also on a very microscopic level, we can see that nothing stays around. The body is constantly revealing that. It's always in flux. Breath, heartbeat, sensations, feelings, always moving. We can connect into um, uh, our animal nature as we sense the body, as we feel the life animating through it. We can sense that we're not so separate from all the life forms that are around us with beating hearts. We often think we live in this bubble of human separation, but we're far more connected than that. This is from Diane Ackerman. She says, watching life, it's easy to spot the signs. The push to birth is a giveaway. The urge to break or squeeze towards daylight through shells, seeds, and vaginal tracts. So is the hunger for growth and dividing and multiplying for clumps of cells, masses of eggs, milky clouds, or larvae. So too the tendency to separate, to make boundaries, membranes, skin but also to join, to merge, to knot and pull, to flock and swarm. Likewise, the impulse to fidget among creatures, to tremble and blink and shimmer and wobble, to shiver and flex and clench, to hold on and grip with hooks and suckers and little flicks of keratin. And the call to voice, to signal, to hoot and howl and hiss and chirp and bark and wail. Pervasive in life is a propensity to breathe and eat and digest and excrete, copulate, collaborate, conspire and to suffer aging and death. We did not have to wait for modern biology to tell us that we are akin to other creatures. It was probably our first great thought. Mm. 
there's a practice in that comes from the the same teaching the the um, Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha asks uh, people to contemplate the 32 parts of the body. It was a way that the body was classified in in those days. And um, so we're supposed to reflect on the different components, hair, nails, skin, blood, pus, bile, bones, liver, all the different parts of the body that aren't necessarily so glamorous. They don't feature on the front cover of Vogue too often. Um, As a reflection as a way to um, see the body for what it is. You know, we get very sort of transfixed by the the image of the body held together in skin and nice clothes and all of that. Um, The original intention for that practice was to to cultivate a certain disenchantment with the body, to, 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 uh, to cut through the clinging to the body as self, as who we are. What I've noticed when I do that practice and do variations of that practice is I can't help um, thinking about the wonder of the body and the, the marvel of the body, the mystery of the body. And the body is an amazing thing. You know, these brains, these incredibly complex brains, trillions and trillions of synapses firing. Maybe not firing as much today, but as we get older, but you know, just incredible way the body heals itself. You know, we get sick, we get injured, you know, we get a cut and, you know, we don't have to do anything. It just heals itself. Or the way our hair grows or nails grow. <laughs> and to me, when we look at the body in that way, and we, we look at the, the, the way that the body is really just living itself, doing its thing, we don't have to do much to make it work. The body is breathing by itself. The heart is beating by itself. The blood is pumping by itself. We digest by it. We don't have to tell our stomach, okay, now lower intestine, get to work. Is food coming down on the tract? No, it just happens organically. The Buddha said, this body does not belong to you or anyone else. It is a result of previous activity. For now it is to be felt. So what happens when we look at the body in that way, we see the mysteriousness that it's all happening by itself. You hear a sound, you hear the sound of the bell, the meditation. You don't have to think to hear something. Sound appears and is known. You, you breath comes in the body and it's known. Sensation in the knee comes up and it's known. Very effortless, very natural very mysterious, all happening within this field of awareness, which is even more mysterious, more magical. And yet we have so much of our identity wrapped up around this body. We care so much about how it looks, how it's clothed. You know, we get into having the perfect yoga body and the best asana and the most spiritual looking mindful meditator and how we walk slowly and look really cool and so we have a lot of selfing that goes on a lot of attachment to how we look how our identity is perceived you know if we go for a haircut and have a bad haircut or we have a bad hair day 
You know, there's a sense of identity of, oh my God, how, did, how does this body look now? How am I appearing to the world? This is tragic. So, what I want to leave us with is the paradox of living in this body. We have this body that we have to take care of, we have to inhabit, we have to embody, we have to come to know and and nurture, protect, and at the same time to inquire into, is this body all of who I am? Is this really what I take myself to be? Am I just this bunch of flesh and bones? Is that who I am? Is that who I take myself to be? It's certainly mostly who we think of when we say, well, this is me. I point to my, myself and my body. I don't say, oh, that's me over there, the one with the black pants on. No, it's, this is me, this is my body. And yet when we when we identify anything, the ego is always trying to, as Harry talked about yesterday, the eyeing and the mying, the process that the ego lays claim to things, is always a process of limitation, of constriction, of narrowing ourselves into a box. Well, I'm this or I'm that. I'm this body or this mind or this something. So when you're reflecting on your body, when you're sensing your body in these days, perhaps noticing the mystery of it, the wonder of it, how it magically appears and does itself, pay attention to that process of selfing, of how we take our identity to be this body, Notice that what, what notice what that does to your experience when you take this body to be all of who you are. Notice if there's a sense of limitation or constriction. There's a line from the Buddha where he says, "Were the body self, the body would not suffer affliction, and we could have whatever body one wished, saying, "Let my body be this way or that, and it would do so." But of course it doesn't outside of the control of the mind. So we live with the paradox of being both embodied in form, in a body, and to be invited into the reflection, the question, is this all of who we are? Is this ultimately who you take yourself to be? both a vehicle for awakening, and the deeper we penetrate the mystery of the body, the more our true nature is revealed. This is all happening in awareness. The body, the mind, the universe, all happening in this play, this display of awareness. So I'd like to close with a reading from Achan Mun, who was a great Thai meditation master, teacher of Achan Cha, who was Jack Cornfield's teacher. 
He says, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to leave the body. Examine its nature, see the elements that comprise it, see the impermanence, the suffering, the selfless nature of the body, while sitting, walking, standing, or lying down. When its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So let's sit for a moment. Notice if you left your body for the last 50 minutes. Notice what it's like to come back into it. Notice, most importantly, as Anna said this morning, what your attitude is to the body, to the sensations of the body, to the feeling. Is there a movement to inhabit, to dwell within, or is a desire to escape, to flee, to get the hell out? attention. We'll have a walking period for 25 minutes and then some sitting and some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.